This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Trail of Magnum P.I. J.M. and Trish DeFogey. Boreala Pelta, the 3D Dinosaur. And 1675, the Year of War. I'll totally take you down in God's Forge. No way, my Apocalypse Titan is too powerful for your puny Crystal Phoenix. What you don't know is that my Great House's special ability is to always beat you! Ha ha! Oh wait, you win. That was seriously fast. Yep, that's because of the simultaneous play in God's Forge. And also, because of my Great House's special power. Isn't that from the new expansion for God's Forge? Yep, and you can get yours too on Kickstarter on November 8th. God's Forge 2nd Edition, plus two new expansions, Return of the Dragon Gods, and Twilight of the Great Houses. You are a great mage battling for the last reservoir of the magic element Ethereum. Craft creations and cast spells to defeat your rivals, leaving you as Master of the God's Forge. With quick and fun simultaneous play. Starts on Kickstarter from November 8th. Ends on Kickstarter December 8th. Learn more at atlas-games.com Or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the clink of rum glasses, the rubber chicken somehow mysteriously on the table, and Peter Frampton coming alive in a sporty Hawaiian shirt welcome us into a 80s revival episode of The Gaming Hut, because beloved Patreon backer Christian Groenseth asks... With all the signs of increasing mania, how would you make a Trail of Cthulhu plot based around the old show Magnum P.I.? Also, would another gumshoe game like Knight's Black Agents, Fall of Delta Green, or another be a better fit? Now that I think of it, would a Magnum P.I. Yellow King This Is Normal Now be possible? Or even desirable? Christian is apparently being possessed by a, uh, a Yithian who has traveled to the 80s and discovered it to be the peak of human culture and is now uh, panicking because he's stuck in 2022. But that's understandable. Yithian, let's just talk you down. Maybe take some <laughs> vitamin E and drink some iced tea or whatever it is Yithians do when they're, you know, in a bad time trip. Meanwhile, Robin, let's answer the question. Right. Well, well first, before people put this together during the course of my part of the segment, I, I have to confess that, of course, Magnum P.I. being a a lost cultural document akin to Aristotle's treatise on comedy. I've, I've not ever directly seen an episode of All right. Magnum PI. And, and now of course it's only possible to piece together what Magnum PI was like from research from secondary sources. Yeah. It isn't on any, you know, streaming platform. There are alternate history elliptonists who claim that you can access Magnum PI by buying entire seasons, but that's, that so seems absurd. That, that, that seems I, ridiculous. Yeah, no I didn't one would go do any that. further into this. So I just I, I know of Magnum PI, but I've not 
directly experienced Magnum PI. So you I have just, not welcomed it into your life as your personal savior. I must have had other things to do than watch must campy have. 80s television. Right. Even in the campy 80s. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But my research shows that uh, clearly, yes, obviously, the recurring cast of that show, or the I guess the, the regular cast of that show, perfectly fit a basic Trail of Cthulhu character group. Magnum PI himself, it's right there. In the name. In the name. He's a private investigator. That's a known template. Mm -hmm. His foil, the uptight Higgins, who's the manor caretaker and uh, is ex-British Army. We can assign him the military template. Now, all of them are ex-military, but the other ones all have sort of clearer ones. Mm -hmm. I suppose if we're setting this in the 30s and it's explicitly Lovecraftian, he could also be like a fusty antiquarian, but that, that's not his uh, his backstory, as I understand it. It's not his vibe, no. And then TC, who's the, who's the copter pilot, well, he's he's a pilot. Mm-hmm. That's an Pretty existing clear. archetype. Yep. And the club owner, Rick Wright, he's a dilettante. Yeah, that's a gaming party. Yeah. And then the mysterious NPC, who uh, I don't know if he ever uh, gives people assignments or, or, or what have you, but definitely he's only heard on the phone and only occasionally... Uh, clearly, he is a head in a jar that has escaped the Migo and occasionally calls uh, Higgins for updates on, you know, how his manor is doing and House Guest is up to. And so, you know, I, I think basically you just set this in the 30s in, in, in Oahu, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you certainly could or set it in California for a, you know, slightly more accessible campaign if you want, because coming up with a lot of adventures in Oahu in the 30s is probably a little more difficult than just watching eight seasons of Magnum PI and backdating the episodes. I imagine anyway, the other thing that you can do with it is make this be, you know, make Robin's nest, the manor, the mansion be the, the haunted house. It's the mythos house. This is the house and you're doing Magnum PI. And this is the setup of Magnum PI. You've been called in because the mysterious owner, Robin Masters has vanished. And, uh, the person who's called you in is Higgins, but he's also a player character. He doesn't ostensibly know any more than he's telling, or maybe he could be an NPC if you wanted. And then, uh, you're there to investigate and find out what's up with Robin Masters. And maybe you discover, as you say, that he's been uh, kept captive by the, by the Mego with a head in a jar, but can communicate, or maybe he's a ghost who can be uh, summoned up in a certain room or a certain hypergeometrical corner of the of the house, um, and you're you're cracking the case of of Magnum PI thusly, and that is how your group of characters gets together. And then your reward is you get to stay in the house and have uh, fun adventures around it, and that sets you up on your Magnum PI campaign. I you know I don't really want to get too hung up on the why are you doing this uh, because obviously Christian Gronson has his own reasons. A Patreon backer asked us to do it. That's why. Exactly. I might want to know why anyone else would do this. And if the, if the (laughs) uh, mission is to make the Magnum vibes of the uh, stories, you know, bleed through into play, I think definitely yellow King, this is normal now is a prime place for it because you do a regular adventure and you either set it in Hawaii or you set it in some other tropical place in America, the Virgin islands, or, you know, maybe Florida, or as I say, California with similar weather and, and laid back vibe. And then you slowly realize as you're going through these adventures that, Oh crap, we're somehow trapped in Magnum PI and we're driving this, 
you know, sort of story forward. And this old sitcom is now filtering into our lives. And why is Magnum PI of all things, a vector for Carcosan influence. And that becomes a sort of a meta game that I think would be a lot of fun, right? Is right. because there's nothing more anodyne and innocuous. I mean, it was good episodic adventure TV when it was on, but you know, I would be hard pressed to figure out how Carcosa links in. And so that's sort of the question is even the most anodyne things when repeated and, and impressed into the minds of the populace are vectors for Carcosa and that any mass art can be uh, an opening to Carcosa sort of to flip the intense, perfect creativity leads to Carcosa from the original on its head. And now in these debased times where genuine art is dead, Carcosa is <laughs> growing in the corpse, right? Don't you think that would be kind of fun? Because the, the thing with um, this is normal now is you're supposed to be very quotidian everyday people. Mm -hmm. And so if you wanted to play with that, you would, First of all, you'd focus on the fact that there is now currently and Magnum PI. Is it currently or I don't know. There was. Yeah. yeah. A, a At Magnum some point, there was a Magnum PI revival. Yeah. Yeah. And so you could have the characters notice that that's on. And then a couple episodes in, they notice that there's suddenly a, you know, Camilla and Casilda are showing up as recurring characters. And then suddenly, you know, the they are you're transposed into the Magnum world and you realize that you've been. Uh, your reality is broken so much that you're in a television show uh, and, you know, then you get that uh, whole sort of, you know, WandaVision thing of trying to escape from the television show that you're uh, trapped in. But I, I think it's actually sort of fun to just do that one goofy thing and then try and make a straight trail <laughs> campaign out of it. Um, if you want to have, like, say, a female player character, uh, you could have Jessica Fletcher, uh, the 1930s version you know, played, I guess, by, by young Angela Lansbury show up mm -hmm. because Magnum occurs in the Jessica Fletcher universe. So you can add uh, her to the uh, situation. So you could, I, I think it would also be fun to just do it straight with just the occasional allusion to the fact that these are based on Magnum. You could do it as a, a one shot scenario and wait for the penny to drop and, you know, change the names and see how long it takes for people to realize that the pre-gens are all Magnum characters. And it does make sense, I think, to have a campaign in Hawaii because, you know, the, the Armitage Project would definitely want some sort of outpost there because that's sort of the, the gateway that, you know, if Cthulhu comes through, he's going to, you know, go up from Rela and go up the 5,000 miles to uh, Hawaii and then keep on going to the U.S. So it may be some sort of kind of station agent style campaign to, you know, keep the mythos out of the island. There's other legends and stuff that you can do in Hawaii. There's the the night marchers who are the ghosts of murdered warriors from pre-contact era who uh, periodically come back and uh, you can uh, fit that in as well. Now, in terms of Knights Black Agents, that seems like the, the least fittable innable thing just because the structure is so different that it's you can't imagine anything that still both of them have guns in it but that that are more different than a classic magnum pi episode and any entry in the born trilogy because uh you know laid backness is the whole point of magnum even though there's the occasional action sequence whereas you know it's not a chase thriller where you're escaping from things and it's certainly not about moving from place to place it's about that particular locale and you know enjoying 
the the tropicalness of it. I, I will say that there was an excellent uh, campaign frame in the old uh, Vampire the Requiem, I think, Chronicler's Guide. It was a Chronicler's Guide to the... Yeah. And they posited a scenario where you were the only vampires in Hawaii. And so you could do, if you wanted to take it down, like you say, a station agent kind of a game where you're the people who know there are vampires in Hawaii and sort of Buffy style, you're going around and stopping them from doing things, but you don't have, you know, access to all these sort of, you know, super spy gear. You just have sort of, you know, a pistol like Magnum does and whatever you can get out of the manners, you know, copious electronics, maybe, but you're just hunting vampires in a sort of a on and off style and the, the, you know, the sunniness and everything else. And the fact that the vampires can't leave because they can't cross all that running water between Hawaii and the mainland, you know, means that you're sort of, you know, I'm trapped in here with you type situation. You could do it, but it would be, I think a, a heavy lift for a Knights Black agents <laughs> director to, as you say, sort of revive the the game so that it was more about um, laid back and 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 banter and sort of deduction than it was about run and gun hunting. I will point out that Magnum and TC and Rick were all in Vietnam together, yes, and so exactly. that of course gives you a fall of Delta Green hook if that's what you're looking for. That while you're it can in be young Magnum, where they're, yep. they've been freshly demobilized and they. Saw some stuff over in Nam, and uh, they're starting to see it again in Oahu. Or you're in um, uh, Vietnam, and you're, you know, a Navy SEAL named Magnum, and a couple of Marines named Rick and TC, and you've, you know, encountered the mythos, and that's the situation. And then you could flash forward to, as you say, being demobbed in Hawaii, and realizing that you didn't leave it all behind in the jungle. You could do a, a two-part arc that way, and right. that would be great fun. And you could have a, a British intelligence uh, operative uh, named Higgins meet mm-hmm. them in Nam, and then they find him again at the Robin's Nest. So, yeah, so I, I think it's a, a sort of a, a recondite choice. It's kind of sly, but if you have a group of people who you know are going to goof off anyways, mm-hmm. and you want to, you know, channel that somewhere... <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, it might be a fun little uh, change of pace from a group that always wants Cthulhu, but maybe wants a, a somewhat a lighter and, and breezier version of it. I do want to point out that the remake apparently has a, a native Hawaiian character who runs the cultural center that is somehow sprouted on Robin's Nest. And if you are doing a station campaign of certainly of Cthulhu in Hawaii, you are going to run into Hawaiian religion and Hawaiian mythology. And I believe that this might get you a twofer. If you have a female Hawaiian Arioi or uh, uh, some kind of a, an initiate into Hawaiian religion that will hopefully allow you to avoid the lazy Lovecraftian trope of look at all these Pacific Islanders with their filthy Cthulhu worship. And you will be able to say, well, as a native Hawaiian, I know that, you know, Lano is a good shark God, but there is a, a darker predator that even Lano fears in, in the night. And that's Dagon. And we all hate him together. And you, you know, you can maybe try and head that off at the past before it suddenly you realize, Oh crap. I just did four episodes in a row of, swarthy superstitious natives episodes and that's not good even in magnum even in the 80s that wouldn't have been good and so the idea can be that you know long before uh, the armitage project sent somebody to uh 
guard America from, well, yeah, the uh, Hawaiians themselves have been guarding the island. King Kahamea had had a, a group of initiates that he'd, you know, trained up or whatever. Well, uh, on that note, I think I'm going to take my second attempt to get out of this segment <laughs> and see what lies on the other side. Track down foul sorcerers in a corrupt city. Clamber through underground ruins. Infiltrate the treasure vault of your decadent rival. Backstab your way to power and influence. In Swords of the Serpentine. The gumshoe game of swords and sorcery, investigation and intrigue. By Kevin Culp and Emily Dresner. And your mighty feud pals at Pelgrane Press. Strap on your blades for danger and forbidden knowledge. Tap into the corrupting source of sorcery for knowledge and power. Sharpen your tongue for the rigors of social combat. Prophesy secrets from the past, present, or future. Seek glory, justice, or the chance to live another day on the winding streets of Eversink. That's Swords of the Serpentine. Available now from Pelgrane Press. Welcome back once again to another installment of Ken and or Robin Talk with Someone Else. And today it is me, Ken, talking with someone else at Gen Con. So if uh, there's sounds of excited gamers passing the doorway, that's Gen Con, everybody. And among the excited gamers who passed the doorway in the sense of they came through it and are talking to me is J.M. DeFoggy and Trisha DeFoggy, who are currently heroic developers on the 13th Age Line, the heralded 13th Age Line, obviously the dream job of millions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Share with us how you got into 13th Age, how you got this gig. Do you want to uh, murder Rob and hide his body in a culvert and take over? Or do you have oh. other, even bigger dreams than murdering Rob Heinso? Well... You got into the 13th Age through me. Through you, yes. I kept seeing it at the game store, and uh, I told Rob this, so this is no surprise. I, I hated it the first time I looked at it. <gasps> I was like, I was still playing 4th Edition. Why did I need something right. else? Yeah. And I was wanting to get into podcasting. and it was, uh, I think my problem was they put the icons up at the front with no context. So every right. time I read them, I was like, I don't understand why these are important. So I finally got it to do a review of it and fell in love with it. And actually, Nick, a good friend of mine and I, he joined my gaming group. We started doing the Iconic Podcasts where we were talking about 13th Age. Mm-hmm. And uh, For those not familiar with podcasts, they're uh, kind of a, a, a talky blog. That's right. Our audience is not always as savvy about podcasts that's as right. other audiences. <laughs> uh, so we've been doing that for, we're in our sixth season, and this season we actually took a step away and we're doing Gumshoe this season. Fantastic. And we're actually doing Nice Black Agents, my favorite better and better that's right so we this met, interview just got great <laughs> <laughs> we met rob at a convention we flew him out to starfest in denver, denver. and rob and i and we took rob out to dinner because he had similar food allergies and so we were his handlers right and by the end of the weekend because we, we were guaranteed free of gluten that's right yes. guaranteed yes. free of gluten and, and dairy which is yeah. our thing as well and we ended up I'm hitting it off over Glorantha and Malazan and 13th Age and Trish, you got pulled in before, long before I did. I was just helping do spreadsheet work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He said, uh, we have this, we have this book we've been working on. 
it really needs a good editor. Would you be interested in helping me get this? And uh, so I came on and I helped him put Shards of the Broken Sky together. And uh, that was my first foray into 13th Age. Now, now, were you previously an editor or did Rob just look into your eyes and see the soul of an editor? In which case, <laughs> I'm going to have words with him. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have, I have done some editing um, for various gaming companies. Okay. So I've done some work for um, Ulysses Fila. And uh, Osprey Games, right? And of course, Pelgrain. I think those are the, the, the big main ones. ones. Yeah, yeah. Those, main are, ones. those are fine credentials. So, so, yeah. so you began as a part of the game industry already, and part of the creative team. Were you were you as instantly attracted to Thirteenth Age as eventually JM was? Or what I'm trying to get at is, did you come at it as sort of a an editor doing an editing job, or did you come at it as a fan of the material? Doing an editing, which was your sort of I approach think, to it. I think at first my approach was Rob really needed help. Yeah. And he was like, I really need to get this done so we can move forward. And, and fans have been waiting for this for a while now. And I just can't seem to get it where it needs to be and organize it. And so I kind of approached it as a problem to be solved. Right. And help out Rob. Mm-hmm. And it was it was a lot of fun. There was a lot going on in that book, mm-hmm. and just all the different um, exciting angles to go in this room and out that room. And Ash did a lot of really cool stuff. In yeah, that. Ash is ter- <laughs> Ash is tremendous. So when you took that as sort of a clinical, this needs help. You know, how do I fix this? Is that your sort of standard approach? You know, oh, you or you try and maintain that clinical detachment because it's important for an editor to to have that. Is that yeah. I think most of the time that's kind of how I come at it. And then I fall in love with different descriptions of characters. Right. Because so often one of the problems in anything self-published, which basically all role-playing games are, is that the creator is so close to the material Mm -hmm. and they fall in love with it. You know, Faulkner famously said, or Hemingway, whichever, murder your darlings Mm -hmm. so that, you know, you take something that's so precious and beautiful, but it doesn't work and you just have to send it off to live on a farm upstate. Is that... (laughs) Uh, do you try and bring that in? Do you have a problem separating you, sort of your fan half and your uh, editor half? Or is it just, you know, natural instinct with a knife? I think, yeah, I don't have a problem with it. I, I almost think I come at it as an editor first, mm-hmm. especially that first pass on something. Then the second pass through, I'm like, oh, look at this little gem right here. This You could do a whole adventure just on this little guy that you found in a tavern in this farming village. And then that's when I kind of fall in love with the, right. look at this adventure. This is really cool. After you've triaged, yes. you can love the survivors. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. And now, Jam, you've been doing the developing along with Trisha. Have you been creating material now or, or just the podcast stuff? In, in 13th Age, I have, uh, there are always moments when you're reading through the manuscript and somebody throws a one sentence line that's just too cool, cool to let go. So I did some. I've done some monster design in Book of the Underworld. I've done some monster design in Elven Towers, Elven Towers mm-hmm. and Behemoths, which is coming out when Icon Followers comes out. I did a new version of the Ice Devil that are, I'm really mm-hmm. excited about. Uh, it should be very nasty, and <laughs> I don't know why they put nastier specials in Thirteenth Age. Those are like JM. Please use all of these things all at once. Right. against my group. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's sort of my role is to take the manuscript, 
see what's there, see what's missing, see what doesn't make sense, send feedback back to the author, and then at some point it transitions fully into Rob and I writing additional material for the book. Whatever is in the standard developer way where it's like, Mm -hmm. this is all great, but this corner isn't finished. Exactly. Right. And how do you two work together? Is it, do you both separately attack a project? Do you split it up? He gets one book and you get one book or is it, he does something and then you drag him back into line. Yes. That that would be more of the system. Um, Usually they do their thing and I'm, I'm working on something else. And then, They'll say, okay, we think this is this is pretty, almost a cake. We'll, let's put it in the oven. And then I go through it and I go, guys, this doesn't make sense. Or we said this three times, but then we said this one. Mm-hmm. And and inevitably, I kick something back and say, hey, okay, we need to sit down and chat about this. Because I think maybe this section goes better in this place. Or maybe we need to cut this whole piece out. Or add something. Or, in. yeah, something's missing here and I need more description about one of these characters. And so then they'll write up some more stuff and send it back. And It's less what's... painful for me than when she's editing like my stuff. <laughs> right. Because she approaches it with the clinical detachment. And there was one time I had run a play test and we were driving somewhere the next day and she spent the whole drive telling me why this rule I had introduced was garbage and no one had fun with it and that you need to fix it. And I was like, <laughs> but I like this rule. She's like, no. Did you look at anybody's face? No one was having fun with it. It's an awful rule. Fix it. Yeah. And spending the whole drive on one rule does seem a little excessive. I mean, just... She, no, I fought he, tooth and nail. Oh, so it's your fault. It's, it's my whole, fault. It's, it's my fault. I should... If it had been up to you, just one exit and you're done. That's right, yeah. It, okay. All right. It could have been a five-minute conversation. conversation. Had you just taken my advice seriously right. in the first place. That's sort of the, the next version of this conversation could have been an email, is this fight could have been a conversation. Yes. That's right. Yes. <laughs> so, um, obviously, there's an endless supply of more 13th Age stuff coming. Do you guys have personal passion projects that you're putting together? Something, uh, you know, in the wind, something in the dream space? Are you, you know, going after any other uh, big editing fish that we would like to hear about? What's what's the future of the Defogies? Well, JM, of course, published Jackals. Osprey published it, but I wrote it. Well, yes. It. Right. And you butchered it, but it's a much better game for having been butchered. Uh, tell us about Jackals real fast. Give us the elevator pitch. Uh, the elevator pitch is a pulp fantasy, historically adjacent Bronze Age role-playing game. Fantastic. Um, I love all those words. I got a master's in theology and discovered you can't do anything with that, except apparently write an ancient Near East-inspired uh, role-playing game. Right. And so we've got the third book for Jackals is coming out in yes. November. First yes. two are... Are out there's the core rule book and then the uh, campaign. campaign, the campaign book. Now, is the historically adjacent in the sense that it's like Rokugan instead of Japan, or is yes. it historically adjacent in that it's Babylonian but fun Babylonia? No, it's it's historically adjacent in the same way that Rokugan is. And, and that's just is, is that just because you didn't want to get in trouble with uh, worshippers of Ishtar? Or? Yeah, I was really worried about Nebuchadnezzar or yeah. uh, Ashurbanipal's ghost coming. And well, just, they are problem ghosts. That's right. I just actually picked up first ghosts by uh, Finkel, the curator, mm-hmm. and, which was great. Well, it comes down to I was I was developing it for a role playing setting, and so I really wanted a couple of other fantastical elements in it. And the more I wrote and the more I developed, the further it sort of drifted. But you don't even have to squint. Like the four main cultures are very clearly the Greeks, old to Middle Kingdom Egypt, Israel, and then the Bedouin Bedouin tribes. Okay. So squint just a bit and you can see it. Yeah. In so some places it stabs you in the eye if you do that. Right. Now and as as I've always and everywhere taught 
you should start with Earth, mm-hmm. unless you're a shrinking coward. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do you care to defend your shrinking cowardice? Is there something that you were able to put in that you simply couldn't have put into the real life and not particularly well-documented Middle Bronze Age? I had a lot of... So I went at it from the idea that there was a lot of gray space already, as you said, in the Bronze Age, especially right before the Bronze Age class, where you have all right. of these. My favorite new internet meme is, history is written by the victors. See people show up, destroy everything, leave no written records, disappear from history. I'm like, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. But I wanted, I had started almost, I would started writing this world with a lot of poetry and history that doesn't really matter. And when I got to the, place, the time that I wanted to talk about I was like, I want three moons for a very specific reason in world. Okay. I wanted beast men, which are not really something that we saw kind of in that area. I wanted a serpent king empire. So Hittite, the Hittites empire, which is gone, is, was ruled by serpent men. When in historical fact, as we all know, was ruled by lioness. Exactly. Lioness <laughs> women. It's, yeah. it's, it's great. Now I'm adding Scythians in. I just had, there, there was enough fantasy in me that I wanted to keep adding these little elements. And so it kept drifting from a a strict Bronze Age well, Earth game. No, no, no notion of strict necessarily. That's true. But anyway, it still sounds amazing and super cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trisha, are you a Jackals fan? Uh, oh. this, or are you just a, a Jackals editor? Um, Both. And do you have your own <laughs> uh, creative uh, stuff that you've got going on, or is it mostly just ruining the dreams of of, of soft eyed uh, artists? Yes, mostly mostly ruining dreams. I am currently project manager for Torg Eternity. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, we just finished releasing the Kickstarter for Pan Pacifica. So we're done with year one. We're going into year two. And so I also get to destroy the dreams of all of the writers who are, you know, writing for Torg year and, and two. Torg, and Torg, for uh, the audience that is younger than me, which is virtually all of it, is starting with lots of Earths. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Uh, a multi-cosm warfare it was a terrific game in the 80s. We played it. It sort of always, you know, had dreams that outstripped its rule set. And I mm-hmm. understand the new system is, is yes. better. Mm-hmm. And uh, that the new Torg is just as cool as, as old Torg. Oh, um, I really like to think so. Good. And uh, <laughs> we, we've talked to project managers on the show before. Mm-hmm. And that always seems like the most thankless job imaginable. <laughs> um, you know, not getting not just one writer to do what you want, but a bunch of them. Yes. Is what, what's your sort of like takeaway nugget of project management that you might, you know, wish other people applied or that you wish you yourself applied more or that you apply always and you can't understand why no one else does? Um, I think I would say praise, praise the good stuff. You can't praise writers and creative content people enough. We are and simple children. We the are. more that you praise, the better you're going to get from them. So, you know, find what they're doing right and praise it a lot and they will give you more of it. Fantastic. And, uh, yeah, that's... Lots of carrot. That's yes. right. It also makes the stick hurt less. Yes. you know the carrot's coming. But does when the I, stick hurt less? When I say, does hey. <laughs> <laughs> stick still stings. <laughs> but you're also uh, going to be editing. Uh, we've got a... We partnered with Tim Brown mm-hmm. and we're going to part... Our, we've formed a new company called Strange Owl Games and Trish is going to be the project manager for that. And we've got partnered with Ulysses to bring out the new edition of Space 1889. Oh, yes. Even even more fun. I yeah. know. I'm, We're very excited. You're, you're just going back to the 80s and bringing things back from my yeah. adolescence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's not wise. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Do not call up that which you cannot put down. That's, right. That's my advice. Um, 
give us the, you know, where they can find you, where people can keep track of you. What's your podcast data? So if you want to find Iconic, you can go to Iconic Production. Uh, we do a lot of things. So IconicProduction.us is our is our website. You can there, we do actual plays of Torg and Deadlands. We've got five or six podcasts on there. Uh, we stream on Twitch multiple times a week. And then if you want to find out about Space 1889, com. You can find our our website, and it has a link to our Patreon. You can sign up and get all the news about the coming Kickstarter and, and kind of keep up. rules, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, as uh, consummate professionals that they are, they end on a plug. And so, therefore, <laughs> what else can we do but end on this? The Best of Ask Fageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast's mustache luxuriantly groomed alongside such laid-back but heroic Patreon backers as... Alexander Shendy. Jesse Lowe. Jeff Cars. Jean-Francois Parody. And Carl Schmidt. The bubble of the beakers, the crackle of the Van de Graaff generators, the ping of the machine that goes ping, welcome us... Once more to the big old clean, beautiful, well lit laboratory, or perhaps it's the stuffy, arcane, badly maintained museum where in either event we will have fun with science. And today we're having fun at the behest of beloved Patreon backer Ross Ireland, who brings to our attention a story from the CBC called Face to Face with a Perfectly Preserved Dinosaur that Looks Like It Was Alive Yesterday. And Ross says, hi, guys. So are we thinking YIG or just return dinosaurs? Leaving it to us, I guess, to answer that question. And Robin, this dinosaur was found in Canada. So I believe this makes him your dinosaur. Right. So this is this dinosaur does not live at a, a fusty, ill-maintained museum, but he lives at the Royal Terrell Museum in Drumhill, Alberta, which is a fancy new museum. and shiny and full of dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we're talking about is boreal Pelta, which uh, translates as Northern Shield, and he is a nodosaur, sometimes known as the Suncor Nodosaur, after the oil company on whose oil sands project it was dug up. That's what we need is, is oil company sponsorships of dinosaurs. That right. will literally complete the arc of irony. <laughs> 
Yes, they're they're uh, digging up the stuff the dinosaurs ate and uh, and the original dinosaur. So he was discovered in Fort McMurray, Alberta, and a notosaur. In case you're not you're not up on your fine in case you're not an eight year old boy. Is, yeah, is is a kind of ankylosaur, as a, or as I called them when I was a kid, ankylosaurs. Mm-hmm. And the way to tell your notosaurs from your other ankylosaurs is that they don't have tail clubs, ah. but got plenty of other armor, and and this particular one has some super awesome shoulder spikes that are jutting way out and makes it uh, look like, uh, you know, it might be a Games Workshop creation as well. Exactly. The the notion that Mother Nature is actually a Games Workshop modeler actually answers many more questions than it asks. during the Cretaceous, that's for Mm -hmm. sure. And and you can actually find the uh, Nature of Things article that uh, Ross uh, sent us the promo link to on YouTube. So just search for borealopelta mm-hmm. and uh that's one Ask of the main, by name. main things that will come up and so this specimen uh which was the first of this particular uh species uh was found in march of uh, 2011 uh, and it went on display at the royal tyrell in 2017 and so basically a worker with one of those giant excavator machines was uh, digging out a cliff at this oil sands project and hit something that uh, he knew right away uh, was not the normal thing that you would expect and knew to call the Royal Terrell. And they rushed on up because you, you got to get your dinosaurs quick when they got unearthed. And they found this incredible specimen there and they separated it all from the surrounding rock and they encased it in a, a big extra bit of uh, plaster, I think, or just sort of dug it out. And so they got this giant piece of rock about the size of a, a Volkswagen or bigger. And then they used the equipment at the site to pick it up and lift it up and place it onto the truck. And as they lift it up, crack, it cracks right in half, right in the, <laughs> in the middle. And the workers go, Oh, Oh, she didn't much, take much pressure. Did she? No, she didn't. Uh, and you see the crushed looks of the paleontologist. Cause this is all on, on uh, film. And, uh, but anyway, they're able to take it back. Despite the big uh, crack in the middle, they were able to reconstruct it. And what they got indeed was, you know, a 3d, Notosaur with not only uh, armor plates and skin, and uh, they even found melanosomes, which are the little bits of ancient data that tell us uh, what color they probably were. So Borealopelta was reddish brown. And they even found stomach contents. And it turns out that uh, this particular dinosaur was almost exclusively eating a certain kind of fern. Uh, he would have lived on sort of a coastal flatland right next to the giant inland sea that at that time was covering most of the plains of North America, including a big chunk of Alberta. And uh, one day, a, a giant storm came up, washed him into the sea. He sank to the bottom. If you're a notosaur and you're stuck in the water, A, you're going to drown. Mm-hmm. You're not aquatic. Just the way of the world. And B, you're going to flip over because your heaviest side is the armor side. And so mm-hmm. you're going to flip over exposing your belly and you're going to drop down to the bottom and uh, sediments are going to cover you and a, a sort of a concretion covered this particular specimen and then the sediments were laid down on top of it and unlike most dinosaur fossils it wasn't crushed and so this incredible specimen uh, remains and he was probably about 18 feet long would have weighed around 1.3 tons and wasn't a fast moving dinosaur. So when the uh, theropods of the time wasn't quite T-Rex time, there was a precursor that was still pretty badass. 
And uh, the armor would have the been... The pre-rex, I believe it's called. Yeah. And so that's this amazing specimen. And every so often, the CBC re-promotes this episode from a couple of years ago. And the Borallo Pelta uh, goes viral again. And yep. that's uh, what they're doing this time. So the question we have before us is, okay, this is a cool dinosaur specimen. That's the science part. That's pretty fun already. But where's the mm -hmm. fun part? Is this some sort of sign of serpent folk activities, yig? Is there a hollow earth? And the way that you determine whether a dinosaur specimen is just a dinosaur specimen or a manifestation of something archaic coming back is that you look at the paranormal profile of the place where it's found. So Fort McMurray is an oil town. It attracts a lot of economic migration. A lot of people come out from the East Coast, from the Maritimes, to work the oil fields at uh, Fort McMurray. Uh, my uncle worked there for a while. Well, there you go. But it's a town. It's a city of about 66,000 people. And it's definitely an industry town when oil prices are very high and it makes sense to extract oil from this gummy sand-like material, which is very expensive. Ford McMurray does well. And when oil prices drop and it becomes uneconomical, uh, Fort McMurray gets into trouble. So pretty small city, but it turns out that yes, indeed, it is a locus of paranormal and supernatural activity. So in the early 70s, there was a spate of mysterious mine worker disappearances. And we all know, you know, if you're looking for Yig or for serpent people, you've got to look for, you know, the occasional worker disappearance. And the RCMP veiled that out by digging up a motorbike, which is exactly what you do to prove that, you know, workers are not disappearing, is you find something that looks like a shallow grave and, oh, it's just a motorcycle. Therefore, those people didn't disappear. <laughs> There's a very popular restaurant there called Mitchell's Cafe, which has a poltergeist activity, uh, which again has an RCMP uh, tie-in because we're all about the CanCon <laughs> this week. Yeah. And uh, it's above the jail cells of an old RCMP station. And so obviously that's the the ghosts of the imprisoned seeping up from below. The uh, Wood Buffalo Regional Library, which is a nice, new, modern, beautiful-looking library, uh, has an unseen presence uh, that will touch your shoulder uh, before opening hours, or it does that classic ghostly temperature drop thing. There's a, another uh, residential house in the area where kids walk by and occasionally see a ghostly face in the window, so that's a classic uh, Lovecraftian horror thing right there. There's a housing development called Sincrude Towers, which, as you might guess from that name, was put up to house uh, workers. And in also in classic horror movie trope fashion, was built by displacing a Métis community of people who live there. And it has had mysterious disappearances, strange lights, noises, again, poltergeist object movement. In the 1990s, they had a cat disappearance flap, which, of course, is another a classic sort of thing on the fringe of a liptony between, well, yes, there could be cats disappearing. There'd be nothing supernatural about that. And of course, that churns up the satanic ritual uh, rumors, which are also mm -hmm. all part of the background radiation of, of a, a place that is a weirdness locus. You, you might ask, Ken, are there UFO sightings? I, I, you know what? I'm going to ask that. Are there UFO are. sightings? Oh, thank goodness. Especially on Tower Road, which is not all that far from the library. And... Uh, there's a also another nearby section of town that has harp sounds. It has those weird, almost subliminal uh, noises that uh, come up and creep up into you and uh, are unexplained and the focus of conspiracy theory. And as if we needed more proof that there 
is indeed enough adventure here for player characters to do a station campaign. In 2016, Fort McMurray was part of the International Clown Panic. They were a weird clown sailing. So, Ken, from all of this... International Clown Panic, by the way, would be a terrific name for a band. <laughs> well, let's let's not get in a band or album on that. But Possibly, or, or an episode. I'm, I'm not in right. charge of these things. Yes. I think there's already a well-known band that's pretty close to international Clown right. panic so it's a it's a tribute band maybe so so ken is is the hollow earth thinning is this serpent people what do you conclude from all of obviously something supernatural is going on with this dinosaur well what we've got in the period uh boreal Apelta goes missing like a cat in 110 million bc give or take that is during the three-way struggle for the world between the elder things uh, the Migo and the Serpent Folk. Those are the big actors in uh, 110 million BC. Spoiler, the Migo will win, if you're wondering. And so the Borealapelta immediately strikes one, as, as Ross Ireland uh, so presciently points out, as a possible uh, Serpent Folk or Yig power capsule. And then the fact that he's, you know, swept off his feet and pulled to the bottom of the ocean implies Elder Thing action. So I would say that the oil sands, quote unquote, around Fort McMurray are obviously, you know, a uh, Shoggoth battlefield uh, where a bunch of the newly retamed Shoggoths from the Elder Things were smote during a great battle with the uh, serpent folk. And the uh, Boreala Pelta was just one of those, one of Yig's living tanks that uh, got pulled to the bottom. And so, yes... Definitely Yig, but also the reason there's all this weirdness is because there's so much Shoggoth particulate in the air. I would say they're, you know, reaching in and pulling it around. We don't have a full Shoggoth, one hopes, but we definitely have little bits of, you know, random telepathically sensitive protoplasm that are floating around and they get in people's cats. They get into corpses and make ghosts. They, you know, every now and again, they, they sort of come together and schloop up a bunch of mine workers. It's just the way of the world. And then Syncrude Towers obviously was built using some sort of elder thing hypergeometry to, you know, tamp down on this by whatever the secret masters of Fort McMurray are. Pause for applause at the phrase secret masters of Fort McMurray. And I believe that's what's going on. And we've, we've got basically a, a two-handed battlefield with the UFO sightings being the Migo possibly flying through time or possibly in the present day, you know, coming to check on this site, which is sort of, I guess, in the Migo mind, sort of a super fun site where there's lots of dangerous weaponry lurking there from that battle. And they just want to keep a, an eye on it. And uh, the clowns, uh, Robin, I, I think may have just been uh, a clown. They may just have been clowns. That's what the Migo want you to think. All right. That's that's classic clown underestimation. So so Migo are both greys and clowns is, is our new revelation here well i think i i'm sure they're just inspiring the clowns right the clowns start out being people you don't think that when you take the clown mask off there's a big crab creature with feelers well that's pretty good too that's sweet yeah yeah whatever wherever you want to go on that well the migo think to themselves we need to terrify these strange human creatures Mm -hmm. as uh sort of lobster brain fungus things were obviously extremely attractive Mm -hmm. we need to find a look that terrifies humans Oh, let's look at social media. Oh, clowns. Robin, Robin, what have we got? We've got a town with a layered history of probably violence, definitely disturbing behavior, predatory capitalism, right? We've got clowns possibly 
feeding on people's fear, as you just said, connected to the Mego. And what's underneath a giant turtle? Robin, Fort McMurray is Dairy Maine. That's my theory. And, you know, the Boreal Apelta is the turtle, or he's an even worse it. Right. Well, if, if there's ever a chunk of Canada that's secretly American, it's Alberta. So that checks out. Mm-hmm. And uh, before we uh, tug at this theory any harder, I think it's time for us to see what's waiting for us on the other side of this exciting commercial message. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or in glistening hardback. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, they gave you a bit of a free throw, but with a tight constraint, because 1675 is known as a year of war in Europe. So of the many wars that broke out, in 1675, which is the one that you choose to intervene in for maximum positive benefit to the time stream? All right. Digging into it, there seem to be three big wars going on in 1675. We're post the uh, English Civil War. We're pre the Great War between Austria and Turkey again, the the War of 1683. We're sort of in a lull. And by lull, I mean, there's only three great power wars going on in Europe. Russia isn't even fighting Turkey. That's how pacific everything isn't. But who is fighting Turkey is Poland. I began by looking at the Polish-Ottoman War, and during that war, the Ottomans began to signal that they were getting ready to start the big war with Austria by basically grabbing the Ukraine off of Poland while Poland was paralyzed in a succession crisis. They were trying to decide who was going to be king of Poland, And the Polish same, the parliament, everyone got their own veto. So if you think the filibuster makes things move fast in America. And the thing about the same is lots of people are in it. It's very large. Like 600, some enormous number of people are in the same. And this, uh, what is called the liberum veto, basically meant that you would have votes, you know, 599 to 1 to fund the war against Turkey. And so, oh, nope, looks like it failed. Sorry. And uh, Jan Sobieski basically paid out of his own pocket to fight the Turks to a draw in this war and therefore became king of Poland, which I think by this time is 
maybe not an unmixed blessing. Uh, certainly, you still have to deal with the sim. Yeah. And it's like buying Twitter. Then you've got right. Twitter. It's not unlike buying Twitter. And again, you've got a bunch of howling barbarians that you have to do something about. Actually, it's it's not that uncommon at all. And Lithuania is always threatening to leave for some reason. Lithuania, in this case, would be like John Legend, I guess. But anyway, I looked at that, and fixing the same is going to take a lot more vodka than even I have access to, so I skipped down. The next war is the Franco-Dutch War. Uh, this is very clearly a war between France and the Holy Roman Empire, Spain, Brandenburg, and Denmark. Oh, and the Dutch Republic. And uh, this basically is a war over Belgium in which France invades Belgium, which is Austria and Belgium, hence the Holy Roman Empire coming into it and Spain. And they're trying to basically wipe out the Dutch because the Dutch Navy is annoying France as it has just finished annoying England. They almost do it, but they get thrown back. And then it turns into every war in the era of enlightenment, which is to say a long, pointless series of sieges. That's basically the situation, and a lot of the maneuvering is the countries trying to bring other countries in and make them fight instead of them, and and that becomes sort of the uh, diplomatic end of it. At the end, France wins. They get Lorraine, which is what they've been trying to get for a 100 years, and they get bits of the Spanish and Imperial territories near Alsace-Lorraine as well. And then they get a tiny little bit of other bits uh, down there in the in the French Comte, and they have to give back the part of Belgium that they stole. So status quo ante in Belgium, but France gains in the Rhineland. So France is basically pretty happy with it, but it's not a, it's, it's not a, no one covers themselves with glory except William of Orange, who fights off the French invader at the very beginning of the war, and then the French never do anything remotely as good again. And again, that seems to have come out all right. I don't see a reason to really, you know, uh, tip an oar in one way or the other. Uh, France is obviously, you know, going to go on and, and be France for a while. It sounds but almost like other time travelers have fixed those two conflicts already. Yeah, it may be even me. I don't know. I mean, when I was down checking it out, William of Orange you know, seemed to recognize me, which might be from some other stuff. Yeah, chronoamnesia is a problem. It's not just a funny joke. It's also... A reason to take time off with pay. Right. Or, or just vodka amnesia. Right. They overlap those two things. They're linked syndromes is what they are. So I'm then moved to the third war in 1675, which is called the Scanian War. If you're in Norway and Sweden, but if you're in Germany, it's called the Sweden-Brandenburg War. And this basically is France as I alluded, trying to get Sweden to come in on the uh, Franco-Dutch War and fight the army of Prussia, which is currently pestering France and Belgium. Their theory is if Sweden invades Prussia, Prussia will have to move its army back and that will withdraw it from the front and France wins without having to fight those pesky Prussians in open battle and maybe lose. It seems like a perfectly logical plan and indeed it basically works. But the interesting thing about the War is Sweden begins invading Prussia. They they build up a huge force in Swedish Pomerania, and Frederick William is told, you know, oh the Swedes are building up in Pomerania. He's like, the Swedes are in Pomerania. That's nothing. We're good friends. They would never attack me. And then, sure enough, they did. And so he still had his whole army in Strasbourg, basically, and didn't move it. So the Swedes are sort of running rampant in Brandenburg and they're trying to get him to bring his army so they can defeat it, but he doesn't do it and he doesn't do it and he doesn't do it. And so the Swedes get sort of fat and lazy and 
Then when he does, he, of course, pulls one of those Prussian forced march things, shows up where they weren't expecting him and defeats them. And then it becomes a uh, war over part of Denmark, which is a whole different question. But I looked at that window in early 1675, where the garrison of Berlin is about 500 guys. And so many of them very old. (laughs) And the reason that the Swedes don't move on Berlin, first of all, I think it kind of wasn't done. But second of all, (laughs) it's in poor taste. Yeah. Field Marshal Rangel had gout and he just didn't want to fight in the cold, nasty, wet winter in Prussia, which I guess I understand. But on the other hand, generals with gout, but that's only if they're going to be rear echelon. You can't also have that general expect to go out and physically be in a muddy field. And and part of the problem with the Swedish forces is when he wasn't at the front, everyone argued over who was in charge. He never sort of laid out a, a, a clear order of operations, again, because he didn't want to give up the glory of being in charge of the whole thing, and he didn't trust his subordinates to use the still very excellent Swedish army, because then suddenly, yes. they're the big guys, not him. The person who can't do it and won't let go, unprecedented otherwise in history. Exactly. So, the way to get around this is either to cure or alleviate Rangel's gout so that he starts moving in, say, April instead of June. And so what is, what is the state of gout cures these days? These days, it's still pretty uncurable. It's still diet and uh, I think blood thinners are what you take for gout. In the future, obviously, they have a gout pill. Oh, so you can go to like uh, 2300 and then take yeah, it back. Get a gout pill, take it back. So that's that's one option. The other possibility, obviously, is with, um, I mean, a man with gout is a man who enjoys beverages. I'm just going to say that right out, is to get on Field Marshal Wrangell's good side and just say, you know what, Field Marshal, why don't you sit here with your foot up? Obviously, that gout looks bad. I'll just carry your messages because of my zippy scooter, my zippy time scooter that I have, to your subordinates, and it'll be cool. And I'm obviously not a threat to his command. I'm not even Swedish, for gosh sakes. So he's like, sure, and then I'll just carry one message to one general and ignore the other generals. And so one of them, any one of them, with the they have 20,000 men divided up into columns. Any one of those columns marching on Berlin could have taken it. And once the Swedes are in Berlin, I believe, Robin, history changes a bit. Because then Frederick William really does look bad. The Hohenzollers have taken a, a real punishment, a real insult. I mean, you think of... Uh, the, the psychological shock to the Germans of having Berlin fall in 45. Well, this would be very similar and they'd be falling to the army that, as we discussed in our Poltava segment, is known throughout Europe as the unstoppable, most deadly army in the world. So a lot of the people, because he's buying mercenaries when he's coming back, that's how he's building up his forces. A lot of them would just say, uh, no, we're not, we're not into this. And they would then flock to the Swedish banner because now, They've won the war. Now it's Luton time. And I don't think it would be impossible, even given Rangel's gout, to wind up with a situation where Prussia's basically added to Swedish Pomerania. And you wind up either with the kingdom of Prussia being an appanage of the king of Sweden or secondary scenario 
when Sweden is basically forced to cry uncle by the rest of the allies, that Prussia gets flipped over into the good old uh, Holy Roman Empire again and uh, maybe brought down a peg. And maybe, I don't know if they lose their electorship. I don't know if you can have that happen, but they can certainly, the prestige of the Hohenzollerns takes a thumping, if you will. And what effect does that have rippling through the centuries? Well, by and large, the impetus for aggressive expansionist German unification, not to oversimplify things, comes out of this Prussian ethos of being the natural masters of Germany, which comes out of their having been the unbeatable Hohenzollern forces of not Frederick William necessarily, but he did beat the Swedes, which no one had done up until then. And then Frederick the Great, of course, bops in like two Fredericks from then and uh, finishes the, the deal. Well, if they've already been thumped by the Swedes, they don't have that mystique. And maybe if they don't have access to Prussia for recruiting their troops, they don't have those troops. And so the result is you have a center of gravity in Germany that floats back down to Austria. And although the Habsburg Empire is not without its own crimes and sins, starting two world wars is not one of them. So that seems like a pretty good knock-on effect. And that brings us to the last question, as always, which is, how do we get gaming out of this? So it seems like this period is an ideal spot to do some picaresque sort of European hijinks where you could have mercenary characters or spies or just sort of general adventurers of uh, easy loyalty bounce between these three different conflicts as sort of war tourists in some way. And you can have them each gauge a, a, a different adventure in a trilogy of sorts in which the characters sort of take a, a tour through these three now obscure European wars. I mean, there's a reason that Dumas sets the Three Musketeers in the 17th century. It's it's a very adventure-y, gameable era. You've got guns, but they're not good enough that they ruin everything for the guy with a sword. No one has to wear tight, confining armor because, again, you have guns, but you get to wear a cool breastplate, maybe. You know, in 1675, you got Charles II, who is a, a charismatic laughing cavalier of a king. So you sort of, I don't say good guy, but you've got a sort of a sympathetic fun guy as a possible patron. You've got, you know, the, the unstoppable French, the deadly Swedish blitzkrieg. You've got any number of Balkan adventures you can get into. As I mentioned, the Ottomans basically take the Ukraine from Poland in this period. So if you want to have a forward looking uh, historical developments, you can go to the Ukraine and dig around and find out where the seeds of Ukrainian nationalism are being sowed and then stomped on as happens repeatedly in the history of Ukraine. I, I think there's a lot of good stuff. Plus, you know, this is the era of Newton and, and Leeuwenhoek and uh, the Royal Society and also the tail end of the witch trials. So there's all manner of, of good stuff happening. You've got some Rosicrucians still kicking around. Alchemy is still a going concern. This is this is a fine era for gaming, I just say in general. And as you say, playing a, a party of mercenaries, maybe with a an alchemist who makes uh, bombs and whatnot. One of the marshals in the Swedish war is a delegardi, which means he's a descendant or is in fact Count Magnus, depending on when exactly you date the Count Magnus from the story. But there is a General Magnus Delegardi who's fighting in this war right now. And maybe he's also an evil sorcerer and necromancer. We don't know that. Well, now that we've got necromancy in the uh, year of war, I, I think we can say that we've uh, finished uh, not only this segment, Ken, but this entire episode. But never fear, listeners, we'll be back next week with more of the similar. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors! 
Games. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semble. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Ensure that this podcast remains well-preserved by joining such spiky, naturally-armored backers as... Louis Sylvester. Luke Silburn. Matthew Preston. Tom Abella. And Bill Sirwin. Wear the show or drink from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest horrific design. This could have been an email. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time. And once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>